0: You're listening to just stories about the people working to build thriving communities rooted in justice. I'm Jess Averhart, co-founder of black wall street homecoming.
1: And I'm Rob Shields, executive director of the Recity network.
0: All right, look, so here's why we're here. We're here to get proximate. We're here to listen. We're here to process and we're here to help you process.
1: But here's what we're not going to do. We're not going to be preachy because we don't have all the answers and we will never make you feel like an outsider.
0: Keeping with the theme of sharing, we always want to acknowledge the whole person and that starts with our personal
1: Personal check-in. Let's do it.
0: And scene.
1: And scene. Begin scene. No, not end scene. Come on, we're just starting this movie. This isn't...
0: I, did I say that? I said and scene. Oh, not you said and scene. scene. I'm no. sorry. And. I, it's I'm my off. Midwestern accent. Is that what it is? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe my hybrid Southern Midwestern coming through. Hey, friend, <laughs> it's good to be back.
1: It is so good to be back. It's great. Hey, your video, you're back on video now. I'm back on our, video. For our folks who watch, you were hiding last time we had to show your picture yeah. on my phone. <laughs> I was actually scrolling through my pictures the other day. I was taking a picture of my kid or something. And I saw you waving and I was like, I, I was really confused. Wait, why is... Oh, that's why. That's right. That moment.
0: It was that moment. Yeah. Podcast well, yeah, so I'm back, which is exciting to like see everyone. I don't know why I could see you guys last time. I just felt like I was like at the kids' table. You know what I mean? I wasn't really part yeah, of the no. party.
1: I, with technology, I often feel like the kid at the kid's table and there's, I'm the only person there. Everyone else has somehow figured out the internet <laughs> and is out, eating with the grown-ups. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, how are you since the last time we got together now that I oh, can yeah. see you in real life and all the things? How's it going?
1: We were joking a little bit about this offline, but have you ever had one of those days where it feels like you get whiplash because it starts one way and just takes a dramatic shift? Yes. That we usually record in the mornings for, for people who don't know that already. T- today, we're doing something in the afternoon because of our schedules. So I've actually got to live some life before we hop on online. Mm-hmm. Day started out great. I got to hang out with my my three-year-old son who was not in preschool today. He calls it bear class, as I think I mentioned before. So I was getting to go take him on a nice walk. It was, it was lovely. I feel like I was re- able to stay really present in the moment, just enjoying this, this beautiful day and weather. And then I am on the way to go grocery shopping And I shop at Aldi's, which requires the quarter. Mm -hmm. So I was able to make change, put the quarter in my pocket. On the way, I was doing the math of like, okay, this needs to happen by this, this, this. Like you start going into like efficiency mode into your day. The quarter falls out of my pocket, Mm. down the side of the car. And for people who like watch the show, The Office, where that scene where like Jim pranks Dwight by like pranking where his, his drawer to his office... We'll open up just a little bit, enough to see what's in there, but you can reach your hand, but you can't grab anything. That was me <laughs> struggling for 10 minutes in an Aldi's oh parking no, lot, friends. trying to get the quarter out from underneath my chair of my car. And I was like, ah, this is all the Zen was just poof Gone. out of the room. Yeah. Out of the lot. I got it back. I'm working on it. We're gonna I think this conversation, the seeing you. Yeah. Fill
0: your tank. Our
1: guest today, this is, this is great. we do you know,
0: not to let that quarter steal your joy. It's
1: not. Moral of the story, next <laughs> time, just break a dollar and have three backups, right? Like, what am I doing? Why am I living life on a razor edge like that and just doing <laughs> just so much rides on that one quarter? I don't know what I'm doing. I've, I, it's not the first time I've shopped there, Jess. I don't know why I haven't learned I don't either, friend. this lesson before. I love so. that
0: you compared it to dancing on the razor's edge, though. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's, that's the Aldi experience. That that's should make great. it into one of their commercials. Maybe we'll pick them up as a sponsor now that I've given them Very a shout out. I don't know if they want to be mentioned in this way, but probably should stop now and, okay. and transition to how you're doing. So please Thank enlighten you. our listeners.
0: <laughs> I'm doing fine. I'm, you know, it's we are recording on a Monday, which is a little different for us too. And I sort of am enjoying it beginning of the week. I I guess my big news, if I'm gonna have news. Is that I got my booster shot today? Okay, which my good friend calls it the Wonder Woman shot. Now I recognize that some of our listeners may not be fans of all of this, but I'm feeling good. I got my six month bubble. We gassed up again for another six months, and I'm hitting. I'm getting on a plane tomorrow to go to Missouri to speak, and I feel like I'm invincible. So there's that. that. I, whether that you said when you said, when you said that people
1: <laughs> when you said you didn't know whether people would be down for it, I thought you meant like the movie Wonder Woman. Like oh. Some people oh, yeah. have strong well, feelings too. about that. Did you
0: the movie? see the latest movie? The I was, latest I think, one was I didn't not, like it. Not yeah, my that's favorite. The first fair. one was really good. The first one was really good. The second one was a huge, for me, huge got disappointment. got weird.
1: Yeah, he was another person. Yeah, t- anyway, we, we don't need to this isn't a movie review no but i think our,
0: i think our audience is like doing the head nod like yeah they either love that or hate it. i'm talking about vaccines i mean you know, yes we debate that all day i just needed to take care of that make sure my mom was good to go and mm. so that we can travel with her in the next month over christmas so we're good and that's my update nothing new nothing that's all that was really fit to report since the last time so i guess it's slow going here this holiday season
1: Boosters and quarters, boosters and quarters. Maybe we can elevate that to be the title.
0: We'll have the editor spice us up because we're not hitting the mark today.
1: Oh, or, or of we which, are. Or we are. We're our stride. Mark,
0: that was by accident and so good. Was we're that back. good? You brought us back.
1: Even... You, you're I think you're carrying the team today, Jess. You're you're being humble. You're helping me contain the mess that is well, my day. So
0: listen, I think the universe conspired in our favor in that one moment. <laughs> and so the reason why we're saying that for our audience is that we our guest today, our guest name and author is Mark Charles. So we are hitting the mark because we have Mark with us. So good. so good. So good. And I'm excited to have Mark with us kind of like on the fly here. Rob got mm-hmm. real excited. He was reading, had his book and was reading excerpts of it just recently again and and reached out to me and was like, hey, really want to unpack this. I really want to talk to this author. Let's rock and roll. And so here we go. Mark was amazing and responded right away. And so we were able to book this interview kind of last minute and in, and perfect timing, I think, for just season mm-hmm. three as we mm-hmm. talk about all the things, right? We're talking about friendships and we're talking about transformations and we're talking about community. And so here we have Mark Charles. And so I'm going to do the bio. I have not read this book yet. So for this, for you, for our audience, this interview is just as much for you as it is me, because I'm going to be learning a whole lot. So Mark, I see you friend because you were on YouTube. So I can see you. Can you hear us? Yes, I can. Perfect. Well welcome. Yeah. Here. Welcome to the Just Podcast. We're grateful that you made time as quickly as you did to engage with us and our audience on your book. Well,
2: thank you. It's great to be here with you. If I can, I'd like to introduce myself briefly oh, traditionally.
0: Amazing. Perfect. Thank you. So
2: yat Mark Charles Yanisha. Sinbaka Dasha Che in our Navajo culture, when we introduce ourselves, we always give our four clans. We're matrilineals a people, with our identities come from our mother's mother. So my mother's mother is American of Dutch heritage, and that's why I say tsin beke dna'a. Loosely translated, it means I'm from the wooden shoe people. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are the klompen of the, of the Dutch people. My second clan, my father's mother, is Toa Higlini, which is the waters that flow together. My third clan, my mother's father, is also tsin beke dna'a. And then my fourth clan, my father's father, is Totichitney, and that's the Bitterwater clan. It's one of the original clans of our Navajo people. Okay. I also just want to acknowledge, I'm speaking to you today from what's now known as Washington, D.C., but these are the traditional lands of the Piscataway. So the Piscataway, they're the nation that they were living here, hunting here, farming here, fishing here, raising their families here and burying their dead here long before Columbus got lost at sea. Mm-hmm. And they're still here. I've had the honor of meeting some of the Piscataway. I've been welcomed to these lands by the Piscataway. And I want to just state how humbled I am to be living on these lands today and how deeply grateful I am for the stewardship of these lands that the Piscataway have done for tens, even thousands of years.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you for honoring your family, your Mm. heritage, the tradition that you represent. i that that was beautiful. So for our audience, now you see why we're in for a treat, right? We're mm-hmm. in for a treat. That was the lovely introduction. Mark is a dual citizen, and you you're catching this, I'm sure. In his introduction, he's a dual citizen of the United States and of the Navajo Nation. Mark's also an activist. He's a public speaker, consultant, author. Reformed pastor says, right, and co-author of Unsettling Truths, which is the book that kicked this off. So Unsettling Truths, the ongoing dehumanizing legacy of the doctrine of discovery. And Mark also regularly contributes as a correspondent for Native News Online and a journalist for the Wireless Hogan, Reflections from the Hogan. And as you heard in his introduction, son of an American woman and Navajo man, Charles teaches and speaks to the complexities of American history regarding race, culture, and Christianity. So Mark, again, thank you so much for joining us. So curious, you got my curiosity piqued. Why don't you give the sort of your version, tell us your story and what has led you to the work that you're doing now?
2: I mean, there's so many ways I could go, right? Well, I'm a dual citizen of the US and the Navajo Nation. My mother is American, my father is Navajo, and I identify not as someone who's half, but as someone who is both. And so I am Navajo. I am like Dutch. I am American. And I grew up in the Southwest near Gallup, New Mexico, which is a border town to the Navajo nation. And my grandparents were working as translators as a mission there that was founded by the Christian Reformed Church in the early 1900s. My grandfather was working as a translator for the early missionaries. And my mother, she was a nurse, and she was actually on her way to Africa to work in the mission field in Africa. And she stopped at Rehoboth for some training, which was the mission compound where my father lived with his parents. He had just gotten out of the Marines. And so she was there for a few months of training and uh, met my dad and never left. (laughs) And so they ended up getting married in the late 60s. This is when, before it was even legal federally to marry interracially. They actually just became legal in the in the mid to late 60s, and my parents were married soon after that. And so I grew up there. I grew up in this mission compound, was a hospital, it was a boarding school, it was transitioning to a day school, and it was this compound for the mission agency. And so I would tell people I grew up in a Dutch ghetto, <laughs> just off of the Navajo Nation. Mm-hmm. And so... Mostly it was Dutch people living at Rehoboth, missionaries and supporters of the missionaries. There were a few Navajo people like my family, like my my grandparents and some other relatives I had who worked for the mission, but it was mostly it was a Dutch ghetto. And then after I graduated from Rehoboth Christian School, which was in the process of transitioning from being a boarding school, which was a forced assimilation tool used by the government and the churches to assimilate Native Americans to Western European culture. The actual mantra was to kill the Indian to save the man. And it was transitioning from a boarding school into becoming a day school. So I was there as a day school student. There were others there as boarding school students. And then I went to college in Southern California at the University of California in Los Angeles at UCLA. Mm -hmm. And that's where I would say, I grew up as a Christian, Christian school, Christian family, but it was in college where I began to kind of own my faith. I often talk about it where Jesus went from being my luggage to being my Lord, Mm -hmm. and so I I Definitely begin to own my own faith. Also begin to understand more and learn more about my own Navajo culture. I did a lot of independent studies and research. I fulfilled my language requirement by taking Navajo at the University of New Mexico. I did studies into Navajo time perception and Navajo history and things like that. And then afterwards, I worked for a, a Christian fellowship that works specifically with Native students in the Southwest, at, in Albuquerque. I'll pass through all of that. There's a bunch of other things that happened in there, but I got married to a friend, a woman who I met at UCLA, my wife, Rachel. And we ended up living back at Rehoboth in New Mexico. And I was coaching at the school. I was working at the hospital and I was preaching and leading a small group ministry at the church. So I was kind of doing everything that was involved with that mission compound. And I got called to pastor a church in Denver called the Christian Indian Center. And so we moved to Denver. This is the early 2000s. And in my first meeting with the council of the church, they said, the last pastor has introduced us to the process of contextualizing worship for native culture. And we'd like you to lead us into that. And I said, that sounds great. How do you spell it? Like, I had no clue what they were talking about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so they got me connected with a group of indigenous leaders and pastors from all over the world called the World Christian Gathering on Indigenous Peoples. And I was mentored in that group. I I built friendships in that group. I, I experienced discipleship within that group. We would travel every two or three years to a different nation, to a conference hosted by the indigenous peoples of those lands. We went to Sweden. We went to New Zealand. We went to Hawaii. We went to all over the world. And after it was after two years, my wife and I decided if we really wanted to lead in this way within the church that we should probably live on the reservation because i had grown up in a border town, because I had lived off the reservation most of my life, because I didn't grow up speaking the language or experiencing the culture. We should probably be on the reservation. And so we moved from Denver, Colorado, back to the Navajo Nation, and we moved into what was one of the most authentically traditional spaces that we could find. We were living six miles off the nearest paved road on a dirt road. We were on a sheep camp in a one-room hogan about 20 feet in diameter. It was a one-room, log walls, dirt floor, had an outhouse about 50 yards away from the hogan. Our neighbors were rug weavers and shepherds. That community had no running water, no electricity. And we were there for three years. When we moved there, we prepared to live off the grid, right? We were prepared to haul our water and cook over a wood-burning stove or an open fire. But what we weren't prepared for was how marginalized that community was. Mm -hmm. We already felt like we dropped off the face of the earth. And we quickly learned that one of the only groups of non-natives who come to Indian reservations are those who come to take our picture, Mm -hmm. are those who come to give us charity. Almost no one comes for the sake of actually getting to know us as people. And while I'm there, I'm experiencing this marginalization. I'm learning more of the history. I'm witnessing the historical trauma of my people. And I can feel myself becoming more and more both angry, resentful, and even insecure. And as I'm trying to talk about this with my non-native friends over the phone, again, because they're not coming to the reservation, I find myself every time it comes up becoming increasingly angry until I have to either shut my mouth or hang up the phone so I don't yell at my friends. So I try disconnecting myself. I try talking about it like I read in the newspaper, which allowed me to stay engaged longer. But mm. then my friends would become defensive. Mm. We didn't do that to your people. That wasn't what we were doing. And soon they would hang up the phone. And I was sitting down one day and I was frustrated because I didn't know how to articulate how I was feeling in a way that drew people into the dialogue. And I was writing a letter to my friends. This is like the 10th time trying to get them to understand how it felt to live on an Indian reservation in the middle of our country. And I said, it feels like our native communities are this old grandmother who has a very large and very beautiful house. And years ago, some people came into our house and they violently locked us upstairs in the bedroom. Today, our house is full of people. They're sitting on our furniture. They're eating our food. They're having a party inside our house. Now, they've since come upstairs and they've unlocked the door to our bedroom, but it's much later. We're tired. We're old. We're weak. We're sick. So we can't or we don't come out. But the thing that hurts us the most, that causes us the most pain is that virtually nobody from this party ever comes upstairs, Mm -hmm. sticks out the grandmother in the bedroom, sits down next to her on the bed, takes her hand and simply says, thank you. Thank you for letting us be in your house. I wrote that and I said, that's it. That's how I'm feeling. Mm. I started sharing that with both people in our community as well as non-Natives living off the reservation. People in our community affirmed me for articulating clearly how it felt to live there. Mm -hmm. And people off the reservation would come to me and they'd say, how do we say thank you? Mm. How do we express gratitude to the host people of these lands? Mm -hmm. Now we're having a very different dialogue. Mm. Now instead of talking about victim versus oppressor, We're talking about what I think is the essential piece of the problem, which is we have this reversal of roles, Where the United States of America that likes to call itself incorrectly a nation of immigrants. Most of those hundreds of millions of those immigrants are here from Europe, and they're living here like they own the place, even though they're here without documentation, without treaty, and without permission of the indigenous peoples of these lands. And our native peoples were put on these reservations and are treated as unwanted guests in someone else's house. And we have to reverse those roles. I want our nation to understand in some very real and practical ways they are guests in someone else's house. And I want our native peoples, our indigenous people to understand in some very real and practical ways we are the host people of the land and we have to step into our role as the host. Hmm. So that's an introduction both to some of my story as well as to my work, because that is very much what my work is about trying to do, which is how do we have this dialogue? How do we wrestle with this history? How do we create a healthier community so that we can actually move forward yeah. instead of continuing to either stand still or even move backwards as we've been doing so frequently?
0: Yeah. Thank mm. you, Mark. That's great, lovely storytelling, which we talk about on this mm-hmm. podcast. I feel like every, at least recently we've been talking about the power of storytelling, and mm. and it does it does have the ability to bring people together and open up conversation. And I think the way that you described your grandmother's house, right? Mm. That's a beautiful. Mm. It was a really beautiful way to to bring us in. Thank you for that.
1: Yeah, yeah. You, in the book for for those who are already. You know, googling on Amazon to to look up how they can buy this. I'll hold it up for people so there they can go. recognize the image when they get to it. But we'll have instructions on where to find that later. You unpack that metaphor and really the power of story and narrative really beautifully. And I remember you in that that chapter, Mark, talking about how saying thank you isn't the end. You know, in that story of going upstairs mm-hmm. just to spend time to show gratitude to the to the old grandmother in that in that analogy, it's just the beginning but it's a beautiful way to start. And so I'm so glad that you actually started this conversation with that story because I really think it frames so much of your book. More of it in mine is highlighted than not, which is always a good (laughs) sign of a book that really has an impact on your life. You you run out of highlighters. We're going to get into some really, really, I think, important dialogue in this conversation. Before we do that, I'd love for you just to be able to define some terms for us a bit. Your first sentence for this book, is you coming out strong out the gate, the quote is, you cannot discover lands already inhabited. That's sentence number one. And it just makes you lean in and say, okay, I mean, the the storytelling, you know, gift is is clearly there. And I want to know more. Please, please keep talking. And you do. One of the injustices you name is that, to quote you here, most Americans are unaware of the doctrine of discovery, just period, full stop, which you call one of the most influential, yet hidden narratives in American society, that despite it being a 15th century concept continues to impact us upstream in, in our social reality, in American society, well into the 21st century. So I think we got to frame out for our listeners who probably are, it's probably true of many of them. Hey, I, I, I need you to unpack a little bit more of what that term is to give us context for what you really unpack further in your book that we'll get to later. So could you just, could you unpack that a little bit for us? The Doctrine of Discovery, what is it? How is it still impacting us today?
2: Yeah. So I need to start by prefacing that. So the doctrine of discovery has a long journey, right? So there's a journey of how the church got from the teachings of Jesus, who said things like, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How we got from that to a dehumanizing doctrine of discovery that literally gave the church the right to kill people who didn't look like, sound like, act like, or speak like them. That's actually covered very in depth in our book. And that's it's chapters three and four of the book. I highly recommend, especially people who are following the Christian faith, to read those chapters because they're very instrumental in helping us understand what happened and why did the church become what it became. But the Doctrine of Discovery, it's a series of papal bulls, edicts of the Catholic Church. They were written between 1452 and 1493, and they say things like invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens and pagans whatsoever, reduce their persons to perpetual slavery, convert them to his and to their use and profit. It's essentially the church in Europe saying to the nations of Europe, wherever you go, whatever lands you find not ruled by white European Christian rulers, those people are subhuman and their land is yours to take. So this is the doctrine that allowed European nations to go into Africa, colonize the continent, and enslave the people because they didn't see them as human. It's the same doctrine that let Columbus, who was lost at sea, land in this new world which was already inhabited by millions and claimed to have discovered it. Again, the book starts with, you cannot discover lands already inhabited. When I'm speaking in person, In a public forum, I often tell people, I say, take your laptops, your cell phones, your porses, your wallets out, and put them in front of you, and I will come by and discover them for you. Hmm. Clearly, I can't do that, right? That's stealing. The fact that we call it discovery reveals the implicit racial bias, which is that, well, these beings who are here aren't fully human. So the doctrine of discovery, as we lay out actually in, in chapters three and four very clearly, is a white... Christian male supremacist doctrine that is literally the fruit of a church that has prostituted itself out to the empire. Now, the challenge is this doctrine gets embedded into the foundations of the nation. The Declaration of Independence, which began with this inclusive phrase, we hold these truths to be self-evident, all men are created equal. 30 lines later, it refers to natives as merciless Indian savages, making it very clear the only reason the founding fathers used that term all men Because they had a very narrow definition of who was actually human. The Constitution, which starts with the words, we the people, again, sounds inclusive. Article 1, Section 2, the section that determines who is and who is not a part of the Union, who is and who is not covered by this Constitution, never mentions women, specifically excludes natives, and counts Africans as three-fifths of a person. So in 1787, that literally left white men, and it was white landowning men who could vote. So the influence of this doctrine has left us with a white supremacist declaration of independence and a white supremacist constitution. And it even goes further in depth into our Supreme Court case precedents where in 1823 discovery is labeled as the precedent the the what determines land titles And it says natives were mere occupants of the lands, and because we're savages, we don't have the land title to it, we're only the occupants of the land. Europeans have the right of discovery to the land, so that makes them the two title holders. That doctrine of discovery and that precedent are referenced by the court in 1954, 1985, and most recently in 2005. I have a TEDx talk I've given online. It's called We the People, the three most misunderstood words in U.S. history that goes in depth into that 2005 court case. And so this is is part, just a part of the lasting legacy of this doctrine of discovery that has very much influenced the foundations of the nation that we're living in today.
0: Thanks, Mark. That's helpful. We just took a history lesson. That was real. That was very important as it sets up this next question perfectly. It really is going to help us kind of expand on what you just shared. So where we can take it out a little bit broader. I want to talk about how we and when I say we, the Just Podcast and Rob, we talk a lot about digging up this. For, we started our podcast three three seasons ago, talking about digging up this four hundred year old tree of injustice by the root, right of racism, and in a really powerful way, you unearth the layers of having built up our nation's history. One of the ways that you do that is talking about narratives. So let's let's talk about how we how these narratives really have an influence over the way in which we think about social, our social imagination, how we think about community. And I'm going to quote, and again, for our listeners, y'all, I haven't read this book, but this quote is very important because it sets up this question. The doctrine of discovery, which Mark just defined, it's a diseased theological imagination. This is the quote in the book has led to a diseased social imagination resulting in the formation of dysfunctional unjust social systems and structures. These dysfunctional systems find fuel from the dysfunctional narratives of our society. How many times can we say dysfunctional? That's (laughs) real, right? So 2020, here we go. It caused a lot of increased awareness, right? Around systems, around injustice, around it's forced conversations in new ways. It's required people to look at their own history and stop looking outward at everybody else. It's really brought people into their own place in history. Can you just share a little bit, talk to us about the role that narratives are playing in perpetuating these systems? Why do we need to understand it so that we can better understand our social imagination moving forward?
2: There's so many ways I could answer this question, right? I think the best way is to give you an example that partially comes from the book and even from some things that we've expanded on beyond the book. Chapters nine and 10 are two of the hardest chapters in the book to read because chapters nine and 10 deconstruct the mythological legacy of Abraham Lincoln. Mm. Mm. So our history is written by the victors. Now, one of the challenges, seriously, a challenge facing the United States of America is we've never lost a war that matters. We've never given up land. We've never been invaded. We've never had a regime change. We've never been born the scorn of the global community. We've never lost a war that matters. Technically, we pulled out of Vietnam and the Korean War hasn't ended. And we claim victory in Mm -hmm. Afghanistan, even though there's a lot of evidence to the contrary. But we've never lost a war where we've lost in our own land. And as a result, for 250 years, we've written our own history. So if you could imagine what would happen if Nazi Germany wins World War II how would their history books talk about the legacy of Adolf Hitler? Well, he'd be their greatest fear ever, right? He's brought them from obscurity to global prominence. He would be their greatest leader ever. How would their history books cover the Holocaust? Well, we have Holocaust deniers today. Imagine if they won the war. What Holocaust? There was no Holocaust. Through source documents and quotes by President Lincoln himself, chapters 9 and 10 demonstrates that Abraham Lincoln was a blatant, unapologetic white supremacist. The 13th Amendment, which most of us hold as the abolishment of slavery, which is the defining legacy of Abraham Lincoln, doesn't actually abolish slavery. It says that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, shall be allowed in the U.S. It doesn't abolish slavery. It redefines and codifies it under the jurisdiction of the criminal justice system. Not only that, in 1862, Abraham Lincoln signed two bills. He signed the Pacific Railway Act and he signed the Homestead Act. The Homestead Act allocates the land and resources, allocates 160 acres of land to any family willing to go west and settle for five years. And the Pacific Railway Act provides the land and the resource to complete the Transcontinental Railway. Within two and a half years of signing that bill, after the Bear River Massacre in Utah and Idaho, after the removal of the Dakota and Winnebago from Minnesota, after the Sand Creek Massacre and removal of the Cheyenne-Arapaho from Colorado, and after the Long Walk, which removed the Navajo and the Mescalero Apache from the New Mexico Territory, Abraham Lincoln has literally ethnically cleansed a majority of the tribes from the three primary routes of the Transcontinental Railway, making him not only a blatant white supremacist, but one of the most genocidal presidents in our nation's history. And he is the one who also brought Thanksgiving into the modern era. In 1863, he gave a very often quoted famous proclamation for Thanksgiving, declaring the fourth Thursday in November as a day of Thanksgiving. And if you read what he's thankful for, And you hold it against the backdrop of the 12 months prior of history and of massacres and ethnic cleansing that he was doing in 1862 and 1863, you will see Abraham Lincoln is literally, literally asking the nation to have a day of thanksgiving to give thanks for the fruit of the genocide that his administration was actively enacting in our nation. He's calling for a day of thanksgiving for the fruits of genocide that his administration was enacting in our nation. And this is where we talk about this diseased social imagination that comes upon this diseased theological imagination. Right, The notion of a manifest destiny in so much of our history is rooted in the United States of America co-opting Old Testament Israel's legacy of promised lands. Now, if you read the books of Deuteronomy and Joshua closely, you will see that the way Israel is supposed to take claim of their promised lands is literally to kill everybody. Promised lands for one group of people is literally God-ordained genocide for another. And so when our nation claims a manifest destiny, when it claims they are a city on a hill, when it claims they're going to rule these lands from sea to sea, they not only are claiming dominion over the, whole, the totality of Turtle Island, but they are giving justification for committing genocide. And so chapters 9 and 10 gives a visual historical picture of that diseased social and theological imagination that we talk about in chapters 1 and 2. And it really helps people bring home, it brings home for people, how destructive and how even disgusting this history and this theology actually is.
1: Yes, thank you. So and the way you lay that out, Mark, is is really so helpful. I know as I was reading through the book, you know, this concept or this quote come to the back of my mind. We we've often quoted Brian Stevenson on this podcast in many ways. He's someone who's doing really inspiring work and we we admire from afar. But this quote that many people have heard from him saying slavery didn't end in 1865, it just evolved. And I think yeah. that you really provide more detail and context to to that quote, going back to that literally that same time period of, of the Civil War, and really talking about how important the stories we tell ourselves about our history, and I love the word the word that you chose is just it's so simple and so powerful they're fuel. it's fuel that helps injustice reinvent itself over time, yeah and in your book you I mean you you can you can follow the thread, right from slavery being you know, cast aside, right? It, it, reinventing itself in Jim Crow laws. And then civil rights movement coming along, dismantling Jim Crow, and then the emergence of the new Jim Crow of mass incarceration. It helps us make sense of this history. Yeah. when you see the stories, we actually have not dug deep enough to actually tell a different story. And so that story serves as fuel. so when one system goes, it's actually replaced by another. And it's just it's a story of evolution. so i want to I want to flash forward a little bit to m- not exactly present day, but I think when we talk about you have a chapter entitled "The Complex Trauma of the American Story." You know this is something that I think is is a through line throughout our history. but you you do a really powerful job unpacking a really complex concept that I was I think I, I had had an idea of, but didn't have I didn't have terms. And I think yeah. I think you helped give me terms for because i it made sense when I was reading it. I was nodding along, but I, I had not heard this term. I think probably many of our listeners haven't as well. Historical trauma. There's a quote in your book that I think speaks really powerful to this for for folks who are listening that might be new to this concept. And I'd love to have you unpack this more for our listeners. You say that understanding the trauma of people of color, both individual and communal, is, is crucial. Yeah. But it's not always the trauma experienced by people of color that is derailing these conversations. And this is this is where it really I think gets nuanced you're quoted as saying, white people often respond with the uh, quote, I had no idea concept, you know, when it comes to racial injustice, specific, I'm sure we've seen a lot of that in the last 18 months, two years. And with the immediate response of how do I fix it? You know, these quick impulsive responses that reveal yeah. in your words, a classic signs of trauma for white people that have been ex- yeah. experienced by them, but never addressed. And so you ask this question, could whites even as perpetrators and beneficiaries of trauma, inflicted upon people of color also experience a trauma that is distinct from the trauma experienced by people of color and and white people could not perpetuate 500 years of dehumanizing injustice without traumatizing itself.
2: Yeah. So chapter 11, which is goes in only to my own personal story of trauma but talks about the trauma that our nation experiences out of this history is very, very pivotal. And I would say crucial to the way that I do my work and the way I'm trying to move our nation forward. So I'll just give a a brief synopsis of this. So most people, when they think of trauma, they they think of PTSD, Mm. which is a post-traumatic stress or even a post-traumatic stress disorder. It's an individual diagnosis for someone who's experienced a single horrifying event. affects you mentally, physically, emotionally, psychologically. It's kind of this all-encompassing umbrella condition, but it's for an individual person who's experienced a single horrifying event. Now, there's another form of trauma called a complex PTSD, which doesn't come from a single event, but from a series of events. So, if you can get PTSD from being assaulted, you can get complex PTSD from living in an abusive relationship. If you can get PTSD from being in a battle, You can get complex PTSD from living in a war zone. And so, psychologists have observed that complex PTSD, its symptoms can be passed down generationally. They've actually experienced or witnessed the symptoms of a complex PTSD in the children and grandchildren of the people who experienced the complex trauma. Now, the third trauma, historical trauma, is not an individual diagnosis, it's actually how psychologists understand the dissatisfaction that exists in a broad community. They first observed it in Native communities after our history of boarding schools. You can also see it in African American communities after Jim Crow and segregation and even enslavement. You can see it in Japanese American communities after the history of internment camps. You can see it in Jewish communities after the Holocaust. You see it in all these different communities. And I like to refer to historical trauma as the multi generational communal manifestation of a complex PTSD, if that makes sense. And so by educating myself, And ourselves on these traumas, it helps us move this work forward, right? If I understand the historical trauma, as well as the PTSD and the complex PTSD of the African-American community, when I talk to African-American audiences, I can be aware of what's going to trigger them and how to best walk my way through that. The same thing with Native audiences and so on and so forth. But again, the biggest challenge is it's not these marginalized audiences that are disrupting this conversation. It's white people. And after I would, I would, I've been lecturing on this history for over a decade and early on for a few years before I understood how trauma was working and affecting people, even through my lectures, after each lecture, I'd have a line of people in front of me. One was a line of people of color and they were giddy almost <laughs> like I didn't know the names. I didn't know the dates, but I knew it was that bad. And you've just verified and confirmed it for me. Thank you for enlightening us with this. And then I'd have a, a line of white people and their faces were just blank, almost like a sheet. And they would stand in front of me and they would just look like a deer in the headlights and they would I had no clue the history was that bad. And then immediately they would say, tell me how to fix it. And as I talked to these white people, I saw something very familiar and I couldn't place my finger on it. And i I was certain I was observing trauma, but I couldn't place my finger on it until I recognized that I was seeing in white people very much the same reaction, the traumatic reaction I had after a car accident that I was involved in when I was a senior in high school. And I was hmm. started telling some of my colleagues that I said, I think I'm observing trauma in white people regarding the unjust history that they're standing on. And there was no category to put that in. Until I came across this book by Rachel McNair, I'm a psychologist, and she was doing research into what she calls PITS, a perpetration-induced traumatic stress. The book is by the same title. And she identifies PITS as being like PTSD in almost every way, except if PTSD afflicts the victim of a horrifying event, PITS would afflict the perpetrator. She looked at a very comprehensive study by Viet- on Vietnam veterans. She looked closely at this quote by Socrates, who said, the doer of injustice is more miserable than the sufferer. She talked about it as a psychology of killing. If the state gives people a license to kill, soldiers, police officers, executioners, if, if you have a license to kill within your society, what does that do to you psychologically? And she identified this perpetration-induced traumatic stress. That had all the symptomatology of a of PTSD, except it afflicted the perpetrator instead of the victim. And so now that I had her research and I already had the understanding that historical trauma was a multi-generational communal manifestation of a complex PTSD, it made sense and allowed me to theorize or even hypothesize that if PTSD had that path, could not Pitts have the very similar path? And could it be that there was a multi generational communal manifestation of a complex pit that was causing the multi generational and communal trauma that I was observing in white people? And so I began to understand white Americans as another group of traumatized people, but with one very clear distinction, which is they are not victims of trauma. This is not an excuse, this does not justify their behavior, but m- rather they are reacting to the history that they're standing on, and it's having a Mm -hmm. traumatic effect on them. And so again, I'm not trying to convince white people that they're traumatized. I just treat them that way. And I actually use this Mm -hmm. as a way to help train people of color, so that the work we're trying to do of bringing this history to the forefront doesn't get derailed. You see this most clearly in the current debate, not even debate, the screaming match that's happening nationally around critical race theory, right? Where white evangelicals especially are beside themselves with critical race theory. Critical race theory has two primary components. There's actually five or six, but the two I focus on most clearly is one, critical race theory assumes that the white supremacy or the injustice is systemic. And second, critical race theory centers the voices of the oppressed. And so when white people have been telling their own history for 250 years and making themselves the hero of the entire narrative, giving the oppressed, the marginalized, the people on the margins from those stories an opportunity to share their perspective is terrifying because it's going to offer a completely different angle on it that's going to probably make white America not look very good and white America, which is hyper-individualistic, right? And so we have all of these people who say these things and do these things, are benefit in these ways, and they say, I don't have a racist bone in my body. And you know what? You don't have to. When the white supremacy is systemic, you can claim to be free of it <laughs> because you're not doing the racist act. You're not enacting the white supremacy. You're merely benefiting from it. And so then we call that white privilege. And so it's a way to, to kind of sanitize or even clear white people of any guilt because they view themselves only as hyper-individuals and they claim no responsibility for the systemic or the systems and the institutions that they've set up and established to perpetuate Mm -hmm. these systems in the first place. This is why CRT is terrifying for white people. Mm -hmm. And looking at white America, especially white evangelicals' reaction to discussions or screaming matches on critical race theory— merely proves the point. The first symptoms of trauma Mm -hmm. is shock and denial. If white evangelicals are not responding out of blatant shock and denial to any sort of discussion on critical race theory, I don't know what they're doing.
0: Well said, Mark. That was great. That was really, 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 I don't know how many reallys, but it was just a great way that you laid this out, particularly around impact. If I can just, if I can just dig in, because this is my Kind of leads me into my next question, but I appreciate, and we'll do this at the end when we kind of dig into the things that are standing out for us, but your point around the PTSD or the stress, this trauma that our white counterparts are experiencing as a result of what they're standing on. I think you've said it in a way that I think we've been, it was articulated in such a strong way for me today in a way that we haven't been able to articulate it or I haven't been able to articulate it up to this point and acknowledging that there is a response. There is a response and you sort of named it today. It's, and it doesn't excuse it, but there is something there. And I think that's sort of the awakening, right? And it's, what do you do with that? What do you do in that moment? So I really appreciate that. And that's kind of like, kind of leads me to my next question, this idea of impact for your book, because You know, what you've been able to share with us over the last, I don't know, 30 minutes or so is really is a really unique perspective. And it's one in which, you know, it's unique to you. It's unique to your heritage, to your family, to your background, to your to your studies and how the work and the journey that you've taken on as an individual and what you're sharing with us is 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 pretty powerful so when you, when you think about this book, I want to know two things. One, you wrote it while you were running for president. We did not throw that in at the beginning, but boom, boom, I had to, we tossed this little treasure of a nugget in the middle here. You ran for president of the United States in 2020 as an independent, and it was about that time that you dropped this book. So I'm curious, you know, the, the, the world has turned upside down for this generation in the last 24 months or less in many ways, so many of the things that you just talked about, right? Everybody's people are wrestling with it or they're refusing to look at it. They, you know, taking two sides to this here. Has the book, has it had the response that you were hoping for ultimately? Is it playing the role that you hoped it would? And I'd love to hear what that role would be. I know for sure it's provocative conversation because you've opened the door for that through this podcast today. But You know, what was the intention? Has it served that intention? And maybe even where do you see it, you know, maybe in the future? Where do you see it playing?
2: That's a very good question. So one of the quotes we use frequently in the book is, was used by George Erasmus, who is an Aboriginal leader from Canada. And when he was writing about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada, he used this quote that says, where common memory is lacking, where people do not share in the same past, there can be no real community want to build a community, you have to start by creating common memory. I love that quote because I think it gets to the heart, heart of our nation's problem, especially around race, which is we don't have a common memory. We have a white majority that remembers this mythological history, discovery, expansion, opportunity, and exceptionalism. We have communities of color that have the lived experience of stolen lands and broken trees, slavery and Jim Crow laws, mm. boarding schools and Indian massacres internment camps, segregation, mass incarceration, families being ripped apart at our borders, and there's no common memory. And if we're honest, there's actually no point in U.S. history that we can look back on and say there was healthy community across racial lines. It doesn't exist within our nation's history. And so part of the goal of the book is to create this common memory, not to lay blame, not to rub people's noses in it, not to cause guilt or shame, but to build common memories so that we might have a healthier community moving forward. Now, the book, for a first-time author, I, I have a great co-author, Seung Chan Ra, who has written many other books before this, and it was a, it was a joy to write this book with him. I, I highly encourage people to look up his writings. His two biggest books before this one was The Next Evangelicalism as well as Prophetic Lament, and he is a dear friend and a, a, was a fantastic co-author. When this book came out, you know, over the past two years, it's been on the market for over two, just about two years now. We've sold about 20,000 copies, which is nothing to scoff at, right? I mean, that, that's a decent amount of sales for a book. I mean, it's not New York Times bestseller. It's not national dialogue era, but it is being well read. And I would say it's addressing some very good or stimulating some very good conversation. I'm on podcasts almost weekly, if not even multiple times a week, talking about the book. Um, being asked to speak about it and things like that. And so it's generating some good dialogue, but it hasn't reached the national conversation yet. And that's really the goal for the book is one of my visions, both from this book, as well as in my campaign, is I am convinced the United States of America needs a national dialogue on race, gender, and class. It's a conversation I would put on par with the truth and the reconciliation commissions that happened in South Africa, in Rwanda, and in Canada, but I would not call ours truth and reconciliation Mm -hmm. because reconciliation implies there was a previous harmony, which isn't accurate. I would Mm -hmm. call ours truth and Mm -hmm. conciliation, and I think we need one sooner rather than later. So that's the goal of the book, is to have this national dialogue. Mm, I love that. And while I'm extremely grateful and pleased at the way it's generating dialogue within certain pockets around our society. I very much think it still has the capability to, and I would love to see it begin to generate much more national dialogue. I was actually hoping, and we didn't even plan it this way, but I was hoping that because it came out in the middle of my campaign, it would get more national press, but that didn't happen. And so I'm actually Mm -hmm. working with some people right now to strategize. What can we do even in this next year, to move this book out of kind of my and Soong Chan's organic social media platforms and into much more Mm -hmm. of a broader national context. And so our our first year, we sold about almost 10,000 books, 9,000 copies of the book. Our second year, we sold a little bit over 10,000 copies of the book. I want to see that number go up even further this third year. I would love to see this book become something that generates really good dialogue and stimulates really good conversation. Not even only within the the Christian context, but nationally. I tell people when I speak, this message about the doctrine of discovery, even this book, is not meant only for Christians. It doesn't matter what your faith tradition is, if you live in these United States, and especially if you own land, this doctrine from the 15th century that came out of the Catholic Church is very much pivotal to your land ownership and even your citizenship doesn't matter what faith tradition you follow, there is a Christian doctrine that defined your life, and you should probably understand how that came to be. And so, yeah, I'm really excited at how well the book has done, and I'm thrilled and hopeful to see what we can do in these next few years to generate even more dialogue and more exposure for this content and this book.
1: That's a really powerful phrase, and I I think we'll let you go after this final question, Mark. You, You mentioned the need for a national dialogue. I'd like to ask you what role our listeners can play in making that happen. Because when people hear the word national, they may tune out and think, oh, okay, I'm just going to wait for the government to have a debate on CNN or Fox News about that. And I guess I'm going to watch it, but I can't really make that happen. What are ways we always try to empower our listeners with taking a step somehow to act on the truth of what they're they're hearing in these conversations? So whether that be, how do they contribute towards the creation of a common memory? so they can experience real community, helping that national dialogue happen around race, gender, and class. I'll leave that open-ended to you, but obviously besides picking up a copy of your book, which please let our listeners know how they can do that, Unsettling Truths. I know that's one. What would be the second one after that? that you would encourage our listeners to, to do as far as a, taking a practical step?
2: Yeah, one of the things I, I recommend to people all the time, aside of just learning this history, there's so much buried history we have in our nation. And so Unselling Truths is a great way to expose yourself to some history you never learned in school. And you probably won't learn in school for a while. You can get copies of the book on my website, which is wirelesshogan.com. And uh, there's a link there for "Unselling Truths, and you can purchase signed copies of the book there. There's also a lot of other resources around the book, study material, and podcasts, and other things like that. So it's a great resource page. The other step I often point the church to, and we do this in the book as well. And right there's there's a reason why my co-author Sing Chan Ra, his book he wrote just before we published this one together is "Prophetic Lament," and. I'm absolutely convinced the church needs to play a role in this dialogue. I'm also convinced the church is not able to lead this process right now because of its own history, but it, I, I think it needs to play a role. And the door for the church into this dialogue is through lament. And so I, I highly recommend people both read the book and look at Seungshan's work on lament and what does it mean to not even repent from this stuff yet, or to turn yet, but just to allow ourselves to be deepened in our understanding of how broken this situation is, which is really what lament does for you. And second, I I think one of the ways we can encourage people to begin the process of creating this common memory, acknowledging this history, one of the things I do when I did this at the start of, of this podcast is to do land acknowledgments, which is to understand whose land you live on, And what was the history of that land prior to your city, your town, or your state being established? There's a great website I share frequently. It's native-land.ca. And it's a very good resource where people can begin to do the research of whose land are they on. You can enter in an address, a city or a state. It will give you the history, what treaties were signed there, what languages were spoken, and what people are indigenous to those lands. It's not the only authority, but it's a very good place to begin your research on this information. And I encourage people to become familiar with the story of the land that you're living on. This past month in October, we we had a dual holiday of Columbus Day and Indigenous Peoples Day on the same day. The White House even gave two proclamations, a Columbus Day proclamation and an Indigenous Peoples Day proclamation, and the uh, irony of that is... Back to the first chapter of the book, which is you cannot discover lands already inhabited, right? Our nation, which claims this legacy of discovery, that legacy implies there was nobody here. And so to counter that narrative, we need to begin to acknowledge the people who were here prior to that, and even to own some of the history that we're standing on, so that our cities, our states, our towns, our schools, our churches, even our homes could be built. So that's another very good and practical way that you can begin not only educating yourself, but acknowledging the history of this land that most of us are, most people, most Americans are completely unaware of.
0: Perfect. Great, great tips for us. That last one, especially, I wrote it down. I'm going to be, and then we've done a little bit of that here, but it's, I love this. And so Mm -hmm. I've moved around quite a bit. So I think I'm going to take a little journey on my 45 years of being here in the U S and in several different states of where I actually mm-hmm. was. Yeah. So I appreciate thank you. that,
1: Mark. Thank you just for spending the time with us today to, I think the the timing of this conversation here in this month ahead of the Thanksgiving holiday and really leaning into, like you said in the book, literally the unsettling truths. I, I think this is a really powerful time and I would really encourage our listeners to ch- check out, pick up a copy of your book, go on his website, do this work that he's he's encouraging us to do and really be a part of the creation of this common memory because I think you, you put a really compelling vision out there in your book of what it could look like for us to really to pursue that together. But it's going to take work and it's going to take pushing past some discomfort and, and you're going to have to fight for it. And I think that you've you've given us the pieces to be able to do some of that work. And so I, I'm just really grateful that you've taken the time to be with us today and, and that you've honored us with, with sharing part of your story and, and your wisdom. Well, thank you.
2: It was a pleasure to be with both of you today. I thank you for engaging this dialogue. Uh, If people want to follow me online, I'm Wireless Hogan on most social media platforms. I have a verified account on Facebook. I'm also on Twitter and YouTube and Instagram. I have a lot of video resources out there that I've written and that I've produced on on my YouTube channel and my Instagram TV. And so there's a lot of ways that you can begin to dive deeper into some of these points we've been discussing today. And, you know, this is Native American Heritage Month. And so I encourage people to use this month as a springboard to kind of educate yourselves and dive deeper into understanding some of the history of our nation and what it is we're standing on and what we can do to create a common memory and move things better, move things forward in a better way. Awesome. Thank you so much,
1: Mark. Thank you. (laughs)
2: You're welcome. You take care. And I look forward to seeing having some conversation more in the future. So a hakona. And as I always say, walk in beauty and may we learn how to walk in beauty together. Thank
0: you. Thank you, friend. Well, well, well. Man. We we just um we continue to get incredible guests who have extremely unique, I think, and and provocative vantage points and how we look at this work around justice. And mm-hmm. Mark, he just, he really did. He drove so many points home and challenged me at, well, here I am talking. I wanted to know what your thoughts were, but yeah. he really did challenge me. And, um, you know, just the history lesson, being able to talk about it with intelligence, digging deeper, you know, not, not living on the surface. Right. But really getting deep, you know, the things that really count matter. You can tell that he's protective and careful and thoughtful about, honoring his past mm. so that he can preserve a, the future, you know, in the present. So he's like doing all of these layers right now through his work it was really, really profound, very special interview. I think.
1: Mm. Yeah. Unique what in so think? many unique in so many ways. I mean, from, from, yeah. I, from the first words he, he spoke right of just the way he introduced himself in his native language to give, give, hold space for his heritage. And I, I, I don't know how I know, this shouldn't come as a surprise, but I mean, we're 51 episodes in now, 52. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we're still uncovering things that I'm like, I've, I've, these are terms that I've never even heard of. And it makes so much sense as another piece to the puzzle. Mm -hmm. And it feels like it connects to so many of the other 50 conversations that we've been having. For me, my, if I had to pick one, it is this idea of white trauma, white America Mm -hmm. as a traumatized people Right. He had so many good quotes, but there's one that he, I want to quote from his book. One last one that I think really plays out because Jess, these are conversations you and I have been a part of together, separately, so many times. I mean, people are listening to this two weeks ahead of Thanksgiving, right? Mm-hmm. Thanksgiving yeah. is oftentimes its own bottleneck of pressure conversations with people who you love, but also may have different views on. And we're, we're going to get to that a little bit more next week on how yeah. you actually can talk about really hard Not things good. and injustice, um, the X's and O's of the conversation side. But this quote of, he says, often in conversations around race, whites are viewed as those with power who should initiate the seeking of forgiveness, reconciliation, and healing. Instead, by treating white Americans as a traumatized people, Mm. we are actually called to an equality in our mutual brokenness and trauma. Mm. There's a beauty there. And there's also something that is deeply humbling that I know for me, Even when I think about having conversations around race and injustice with people of color, I think it puts me in the correct place in the conversation as saying, I'm not the only, you're not the only traumatized person here. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure I fully, I know I have not fully wrapped my mind around that, Jess. And I think back so many dozens, if not hundreds of conversations where I'm showing up as if I'm talking to someone who's traumatized when really I'm not realizing how much, how alike I am to them. And the only difference is one of us is aware of their trauma, yeah. and it's the person I'm talking to, right, not me. so that's that's yeah. what I'm going to be sitting with. That's a game changer for me, and I really think and hope it'll be a game changer for all our listeners who identify as white, that care about this stuff. If you're still going fifty strong with us, I assume you want to have these kind of conversations, and I think it really helps us think deeply on how we need to look in the mirror for a while to know thyself as you move more deeply into these kind of conversations and, and maybe some family members that you're about to have some conversations with helping see yeah. them as someone who is also traumatized based on the history they're standing on.
0: Yeah. I, I just, I think there's, I think there's going to be people who listen to that, what you just said, and it's going to feel it's going to be unsettling and black folks or people of color are going to listen to what you just said and it's going to feel unsettling to hear a white man, I'm just going to say name the yeah. thing because I want to yeah. get to I want to get to something else here. But hear a white man say that that he's traumatized and have other our white listeners hear you say that and feel like ooh, are we allowed to say that? Mm. So what happens I think in many cases right now, particularly right now, because the the lens you know has is, is shifting and rightfully so around the inequities, right. And systemic racism and all the things that we've been talking about for three seasons. It's, but it's been shifting so that the correct emphasis can be placed around healing and around justice and writing this wrong, right. And really naming the thing, the thing. And so it, it almost feels like in this conversation that we had with Mark, he's giving permission for our white friends to be able to say, we're not the victims of this, But we do stand, and this is why I thought he said it so beautifully. It's why I've just never heard it said this way before. But but our white counterparts are standing on the trauma and the victimization of others for centuries. And so therefore, if we do believe that toxic stress and historic trauma can be transferred through generations, and we have to believe that that applies to everyone. And so, right. And so as you're saying, I'm, I'm also entering a conversation where I am traumatized that my ancestors perpetrated these crimes against people that my brothers and sisters As I look around and I love, like, how is that possible? Mm. You're allowed to feel that way. And you can name a thing, a thing. And for the first time ever, I feel like we've said something pretty controversial in many, and many, and in my world, this will be controversial, mm. but I think it's controversial. I think it's provocative. And it also makes sense to me. Mm. It, it, it feels right to me. And, and his statement, you have the quote, but that it puts us in, it puts us in conversation together around our brokenness. Cause yes. I love that right around our brokenness because we can all be broken, but the lens might look different, but the brokenness is the same.
1: Yeah, it's not not trying trying to. Yeah, it's not trying to say. It's not my. It's not me trying to say to you, Jess. Oh, me too. I'm. I have the same trauma as you. No, 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 no. It is very different trauma. And in his book, I think it's really important for, for those listeners that might be like, "Ooh, that doesn't. That doesn't feel something is. I don't know how to take that in." In his book, he helps understand that we're not saying you're claiming equality in that way in a conversation right. with a person of color he's saying what we should avoid doing is actually misdiagnosing white americans as fragile which is that whole white fragility movement that has yeah. been when we we actually when we see white america as fragile rather than traumatized he says it necessitates the need for positive affirmation when it's not appropriate mm, let that sink in good. for a minute how many That's times have we been good. in that conversation where it's like when white people see themselves as fragile or or other people treat them as fragile, you then are like, okay, they might break. So I'm gonna give them a lot of positive affirmation. And and, and, you know, people of color always put in that position. You gotta coddle this person. Make it
0: okay, it's okay. You gotta make them feel
1: comfortable. And he's saying, actually, stop doing that. They're not fragile, they're traumatized. You treat a traumatized person different than a fragile person. I hope that maybe back into that, it's another quote from a different part of the book, helps to flush that out a little bit more. We're not talking about comparing trauma and saying you should, as a white person, say, yeah, okay, this makes me like you. No, it just helps you understand yourself and hopefully people of color so that we can all treat other white people who may not be aware of the trauma that they carry. How do you actually love that person well? How do you diagnose what they're carrying that they may not be conscious of? And man, this is you almost feel like you need a PhD in psychology for this stuff, Jess. So I'm really glad that we're going to continue this conversation next week and kind of breaking it down in even more practical ways and yeah. how you actually have these kind of conversations.
0: Yes. Because you know, right. Thanksgiving
1: dinner table is coming. Ain't no stopping yeah. it for many that's, of us. Right?
0: It's around the, it's around the corner, literally yeah. <laughs> it's right. Yeah. Almost here. Um, yeah, thank you for that. I appreciate that. It just helps. It helps, you know, round it out, Rob. and And we just have to, we have to think about it in terms of the world that we live in today and these new concepts, new terms, new ideas that we're bringing forward, it's okay if it's not comfortable. It's okay if it feels a little incongruent or you want to shake your shoulders a little bit because it's not what you think you should be listening to or hearing or understanding. If you sit with this though, like we've been sitting with it for the last 30 minutes. I mean, honestly, I'm still like taking it all in. Mm-hmm. That's the process is to not just blow through these things. It's to really sit with it and understand how it works in your life and what it means to you. So really good, great, great, great episode today.
1: And just, just in case I would, I would implore our listeners, please keep listening because I think if you feel really intimidated and feel like we've like made your backpack heavier and you're like, Oh no, I was, you know, I, I guess we are they shouldn't be surprised at this point. I mean, the name, the name of our podcast, we're not, We're not doing a bait and switch ever really, but this is, this is heavy history. I would say, keep listening because where we're taking this is going to position you. I think to be able to move in your networks, in your spaces, in these conversations in ways that are helpful, can be hard, but constructive. Mm -hmm. And maybe I wouldn't say, don't let this be the last episode before Thanksgiving you listen to, because what you shouldn't do, and I think Mark would agree with this, is like, take the heaviest quote from this and then quote it to grandma. At the Thanksgiving on him, table on him and just like potatoes. drop a bomb as you're passing the dressing. I'm like, what do you think of that, Mima? You know, like no, <laughs> don't do that. Maybe, maybe be a little more subtle at first. I mean, who knows? It may get there, but like the practical action step he gave us: what land do you live on?
0: I love maybe, that, yeah. maybe
1: all it is is looking that up. It takes two seconds, but sitting with that and then then taking what takes longer and actually researching these people groups that your house sits on or your apartment sits on, wherever you are. Because you don't have to be Raleigh Durham Native Land dot CA. Maybe it's just sharing. Hey, I did some cool research. What have you been up to? Hey, actually doing some homework and found out that uh, you know the area that my neighborhood is in traces back to this Native American tribe. It could frame oh, out a helpful conversation, you know. So anyway, I would just say that uh, I, I'm sure our listeners already know not to go in red hot with these kind of things, but
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't come in hot. Just you know. Take your time. Okay. Take your time. They've been with us this whole time. They've Y'all been have with been us three seasons. They've been with so us hang and, in there. Uh,
1: yeah. Come on. <laughs> don't
0: folks who've never heard of just podcast.
1: <laughs> just just maybe process process your own trauma a little bit uh, before mm-hmm. you go, you know, ruffling too many feathers. But I, I'm really grateful. I think the timing of this is really important. And I'm just thankful for the work Mark is doing and I hope that we can be some small part of this what sounds like a grassroots ripple effect movement of getting traction around his book that mm-hmm. just presents a really compelling case of, of an untold side of our history that we haven't, we've been 50 episodes in and we hadn't never scratched the surface of it. Um, yeah.
0: Well, well done in in getting him on here and reading the, having that book and the timing, you know, the universe always conspires again in our favor. So...
1: Either that or just my North own impulsivity North as I North put North the North. book down and, you know, <laughs> take a shot in the dark to, to, email, to, and you to find the author. And the
0: timing of this, I'm telling hey, you. It's I'm one on. for
1: one, that only encourages me to continue that kind of behavior, <laughs> right? I'm, I'm, it worked. Person. Amazing. So we'll uh, see who else. Maybe we can go to his, get a co-author next. Who knows? There you go. There you go. All right. Well, all right, Jess,
0: Well, we'll see you next week. This was great. As always. All Good right. Stuff. Go get some,
1: go get some rest. Go get some rest. I'm going to take some
0: Advil from a little booster. My arms. Oh, you're going to go
1: get another. You're going to get a boost from the Advil for your booster. I see.
0: Yeah, I mean whatever it takes. That wasn't <laughs> that wasn't nearly as cool as, as yours
1: from earlier when you said we're uh, we're on mark. The you mark. Say? Yeah, we're, we're, know, the right.
0: not, we're not hitting the mark today. And then we're like, yes, we are.
1: We All should right, have let. I should have just let that be the only one. I tried and I just. you are going to get a boost from my booster. I need a booster for whatever that joke was that I just tried and, oh. Someone just pulled a plug. We do
0: a podcast after 3 p.m. That's the lesson learned here. (laughs) We're devolving very bad.
1: Thank you if you're still Uh, listening. God bless you. All right. Until until next time.
0: All right. Take care. I'll see you next week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to Just. In the spirit of sharing, if you like what you've heard, tell a friend about the show and give us a five-star rating and review.
1: Many thanks to DJ p Dog and producer Low Key for producing the music for our show. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.